This week on Oi Space Man, City of Death. Written by David Agnew, directed by Michael Hayes. While taking in the sights of Paris in 1979, the fourth Doctor and Romana sense that someone is tampering with time. Who is the mysterious Count Scarleone? Why does he seem to have counterparts scattered through time? And just how many copies of the Mona Lisa did Leonardo da Vinci paint? listening to Oi Spaceman and Doctor Who Love Story, a social justice-focused podcast dedicated to intersectionality, where a polyamorous husband and wife who believe that loving something doesn't preclude being critical of it. This podcast often includes naughty language, a general disregard of most things Stephen Moffat, and other adult content. That's it? That's it. All the questions. All the questions. Yeah. What questions? So welcome. This is episode 60. I thought Shane might have more to say than that, but uh, welcome. This is episode 60 of Voice You always think I'm going to have more to say, and then I feel bad that I don't have more to say. I just expect you to be as clever as as you usually are. So you're disappointing me, Shane, already. (laughs) We're like 30 seconds into this podcast, and I'm disappointed with you. I'm not clever anymore. But that's okay, because we have a guest to, to take up your slack there, Shana. Uh, today we are joined by the inimitable J.B. Anderton of the Who 37 podcast. Hello! Hi, J.B. Thanks for Hi. being on. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, we'll see how this goes, because, uh, you know, who who knows whether, you know, you might be a, a horrible racist or something. <laughs> no, that would be my dad. <laughs> I'm from Alabama. I mean, you can hardly out-racist my family, you know. Uh, I'm actually from southern Illinois, um, at, not too far from St. Louis, and that's like borderline, like, date south. Yeah, and I'll, 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 uh, we can discuss this at another time, but yeah. today we're going to be talking about Doctor Who. Hey guys, let's play Who's, whose family is more racist. <laughs> yeah, Mine loses. That's, that's, okay. cle- that's clearly what people come on this show to, uh, to, to listen to. Right. Back to the who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, JB, uh, tell us. So, you are from the uh, Who Thirty Seven podcast. I um, am the Who Thirty Seven. podcast. You are the Who Thirty Seven <laughs> podcast. You know, la- last guest we had on was Jessica from Web of Queer, and they have five members, and you have one member. So, That's... I guess average that out, then it's like two and <laughs> that, a half. So that sounded kind of dirty there. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> so, I, you have an onanistic uh, podcast, I like to think. So you know, I, yeah. I'm just gonna say, if we had uh, talking dirty, five members, <laughs> it's like a hydra. <laughs> Straight uh, to the gutter, folks. <laughs> so, we, so JB, why don't yeah. you tell us a little bit about your podcast and how many members it has? Okay, well, right now it just has one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I mainly, I, I think I'm one of the few Doctor Who podcasts that are out there still that are, it's, it's a solo podcast are doing it. A lot of, you know, most of the ones that uh, we know of, you have two or three or six people Skyping in. And um, I mean, I'm a very introverted person and it, it, I, I hate the idea of, you know, asking, would you like to be on my podcast? You want to like, be a guest on my podcast? So I actually started this podcast. It will be... 
It's, God, about two and a half years, almost three years I've been doing this. And it was sort of a way for me to get back into fandom because I was uh, a, a big Doctor Who fan. I started watching the show back in uh, uh, 1983, 84. I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, it was on my local PBS station, Channel 9, KETC in St. Louis. Um, originally from uh, the St. Louis metro, East Illinois, Southern Illinois area. A little town called Marissa, Illinois, and uh, Doctor Who was on uh, Sunday nights at ten thirty, uh, and it would show the program on the omnibus format, where it would take all the episodes and string them together into one movie episode, and that's how I got started watching Doctor Who. And it was uh, it took me a little while to get into it first because I thought the it, it was really it was really weird because I got in. I started watching right around the end of Tom Baker's season, which you're going to be watching fairly soon, I think. Mm -hmm. And just to prepare you for uh, what you're going to be seeing fairly soon, I think probably in the next episode, uh, that was when Christopher Bidney took over a script editor and he, uh, a lot of his scripts that he edited and wrote were very, very much high science, high concept science. Mm -hmm. And I felt like you had to have a PhD to understand what was going on. Uh, plus, you know, the British dialogue was really fast paced and hard to understand at first, but it sort of grew on me and just sort of, it was something to watch on a Sunday night. And, you know, I come from being a big Star Wars fan, and I was also getting into Star Trek um, at the time, more more the movies than the actual television show. So this was just something I, I, I heard of. I mean, a lot of kids at school were watching it, and uh, I was aware of the program, and it, it took me a little while to get into it at first. But uh, uh, once I did, I it just, I, I, a friend of mine commented that, you know, I, uh, most people watch it just as a casual fan, and I just took it really seriously, and that's how I am with all my fandoms. I just, when I get into something, I really get into it. We don't know what that's like at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are all people who have decided to, like, voluntarily spend money to put, you know, podcasts together to... Uh, yeah, to I try to, thing, so, yeah. yeah, I try to do it as cheap as I can, just like Classic Who. Just, uh, I, you know, I have a monthly expense, you know, for the, the podcast storage. I pay it... Um, um, for the domain name every couple of years, but other than that, I really don't spend that much money. And I, I, I've been trying to raise money. I've got a Patreon account that only you know two people are a part of. Um, one, one of them we all know and love, who Brannigan. Hi there, who Brannigan there? And um, our first super fan. <laughs> our, well, he might have been mine first before yours. I don't know. We can share him, I guess. Sure, sure. Well, he can be your first super fan and our first super fan. He is just like a super fan on many lists now. Yes, you can say he's he's kind of splintered across the uh, the, the podcast universe. Sir, if you want to. Oh, There's... hold on! Are we trying to segue into something here? <laughs> what? Hold on! That's, That's actually a decent segue. Very... It was so subtle, so subtle. Um. So anyway, uh, now that we've uh, you know completely alienated everyone on this show, uh, who listens to the show except for Hugh Brannigan. Uh, hi, Hugh Brannigan. Nice yeah. to nice to see you. So we are going to be talking about City of Death, but I thought since uh, you know I've been trying to get other people on to talk about this all Moffat thing, and uh, this will be kind of the last episode that we air before uh, Series Nine premieres. Um, so I was wondering, I know, JB, I, I think you're not that far off of us as far as, uh, the Moffat feelings go, but, um, would you like to just kind of summarize, you know, kind of how you feel about, 
I don't know. I know you listened to our Series 8 discussion uh, episode. Yeah. Yeah. So um, would you like to speak to that a little bit or kind of talk about what you'd like to see in Series 9 or just, just... I have to give Stephen Moffat his due because, I mean, when he was writing under Russell T. Davis, he, he did write a lot of cracking stories. And I think that's the main problem is that I, I don't believe you can be a showrunner and a script editor and, and head writer all at the same time. Uh, it may work for Russell. I mean, some would argue that didn't really work for Russell T. Davis either. Um, I mean, a lot of I, I, my problems with Russell T. Davis is that, I mean, he may not know how to finish uh, a story. But, uh, you know, his, his ideas are interesting, and at least it made logical sense. And he could write character. And Stephen Moffat, I don't think, could write. He's not a very good character writer. Uh, a lot of people I've heard uh, describe his writing style as puzzle writing. He's more interested in setting up these puzzles and setting up, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading and watching all this hype for this Series 9, and he's talking about how, you know, the doctor's, the doctor's going to make this grand entrance. He's going to set the tone for... Uh, the whole of the series and, you know, all these people are coming back and everything. My general feeling is that, um, I mean, yeah, the series looks great. The acting is top notch. Uh, I think Jenna Coleman is probably the best actress uh, in the modern series as far as the companion role. Uh, You know, the music is always in your ears and help setting the tone, uh, the direction, the, the photography, the special effects are all top notch, but everything it's the writing. That's just, weak it's it's completely weak and you know coming from a, a sci-fi background i have problems with you know him setting up these elaborate story arcs that he'll set something up in episode one and then it's like ah you know we can either figure out what's happening to amy whether why is she pregnant is she pregnant or not pregnant we can do that oh let's just or you know screw that we'll just go to go to the spaceship and chase dinosaurs you know we'll do that and then we'll just sort of put that off and keep pushing that back and, peach, and keep pushing the stuff back until, holy shit, we're at episode 12 now. We got we to gotta finish this. And we're cramming so much stuff, uh, a lot of it, you know, throwaway lines and just hand-waving and stuff. I think my two biggest issues uh, as far as uh, plot structures uh, is uh, when the doctor said, uh, the Matt Smith doctor, and I do refer to the doctors by their actor names. I no longer use numbers. Uh, thank you, Stephen Moffat, for that. And um, when you don't Matt's, refer to John Hurt as eight and a half, no, I, I, I'll call him the War Doctor because he was, you know, the War Doctor. The War Doctor, but uh, but since the since the numbering system got completely screwed up, I no longer use numbers because it really Capaldi's the fourteenth Doctor. As well. And to be fair, it's it's honestly easier for me to remember the actors' names at this point. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, wait, wait, who's Who's for? Oh, uh, <laughs> duh! It, it, like you know, numbers, words, man. Yeah, exactly. I, I I'd rather just just cut to the chase and just refer to him as the actor. So so Matt Smith can't visit Amy and Rory because well, why can't you just go back to 1930s uh, New York? It's like oh no, tiny wimey. It's like it's we've had too many paradoxes and and it's like well, why can't you just land a TARDIS in Jersey and take the bus over? You know. Or, or land a couple years later. Yeah, or like right up. Like, okay, look, I'm in California now. I'll be here at these dates. You know, come meet me. You know, he could have done that, but but just the way Moffat explained it was a non-explanation, and I actually came up with a better explanation than Moffat did. And the explanation is that okay, this book 
Melanie Malone, this afterward was written by Amy near the end of, near the end of her life. And she wrote that she had not seen the doctor ever since she got snatched by the angel. And she said she thinks that she'll never see the doctor again. Well, that's written on a page. It's a fixed point now. The doctor can't go back in time to visit Amy because he never did. Well, and they they kind of make a point of that with the angels of the ideas that they are creating new fixed points in time, I think. Short- but it's never really, it's never really, I mean, you don't have to like sit down and exposit and be boring about it, but, you know, just give it a little bit of um, explanation or yeah. justify the fact that, okay, why can't, I mean, he can easily go back in time and, and see them. It's, it can be easily done, but just Moffat just goes timey-wimey and just the fans, and it's frustrating because a lot of the fans accept that. And it's like, no, I don't accept that. Well, because a lot of fans, I think, right now enjoy the part that you and I and Daniel kind of loathe, which is this, well, I guess I can kind of make sense of it if I kind of shove these things together. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to do that much. as a No. Sometimes, uh, it's, sometimes it's fun to do that, but... Um, but yeah, but when you have to go to that extent, then that's just too much. And the other really bone to pick that I have is what I call the Claridox. And I should really like subscribe. I really should like go you for should the trademark that. that. That's a I really idea. should the Claridox because okay, uh, Clara, she's uh, and we'll probably talk about this a bit because this does relate to City of Death. Uh, Clara was splintered in time. Uh, by diving into the doctor's tomb on Transalore. But the doctor did not die on Transalore. Therefore, there was no tomb for her to leap into. Therefore, she was never splintered in time. Mm-hmm. So why is she still in the TARDIS? There was no reason for the doctor to ever go and find her because he never met her because she never became Dalek Clara. Uh, the Daleks never had to kidnap Amy and Rory because there was never a Dalek down in the asylum, uh, baking souffles. Uh, so therefore, Amy and Rory uh, never ended up getting divorced and ended up not being taken back in time by the angels because they were never there because they split up. So I like to think that Amy and Rory are still alive and well in modern times. So it's, if you can pick apart something like that. It's so easy. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, I think this goes back to what Daniel and I are saying, always saying is that Moffat, lives in like no consequences land yes they're, yeah. they're, he doesn't have to finish any of his stories because guess what poof the ending is gone right yeah. to to just to um comment a, a little bit not to 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 defend to to kind of play the advocate of the people who are not on this show okay. uh i would you know i think that the defense of this sort of thing and uh and i agree with what you say jb i'm everywhere of that but I think the defense is that the character drama of Amy choosing Rory or the Doctor in that moment is where you're supposed to go, and that the the sort of um, postmodernist kind of death of the narrative influences are sort of the the thing where you're you know that Moffat just doesn't Bullshit care this about modern narrative. This is not <laughs> full modern narrative. This is lazy writing. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's, and, that, and that's why that episode is so frustrating to me, because I love that part. I love the re- resolution of the Amy and Rory story. I was crying my eyes out. 
may, I, may, I tell, may I say what the better ending of that story would be as long as we're rewriting uh, yeah, of Moffat Who? Yeah. I think, and I might have actually said this on this podcast before, but if I did, it was like a year ago and nobody was listening then. Um, nobody's listening now, but even more nobody's well, give, give it some time. You're, you're going to build up an audience. So. Um, but I think that the, uh, thank you very much. I think the really, because you had that bit in the power of three where, okay. uh, the doctor can't sit still. He can't, uh, you know, he doesn't even want to sit for, for two hours. He's, he's constantly high energy, which is the characteristic of the 11th doctor. I'm sure. Right. Um, I mean, John Perch, we never had that problem. John Perch, we never had that problem. <laughs> Hartnell never had that problem. You know, but it, but it's very 11th Doctor. I get that. Yeah. So to me, the ideal way to do that, because the Doctor is as long-lived as he is, the Doctor could have gone back and lived with Amy and Rory through their lives. Yeah. And then just sort of like gone the long path and then come back and and found the TARDIS in 2015 well, or whatever. Even if they had included that cut scene with their son. Right. The, the PS moment, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that there would have been some more resolution and emotional finality. I, I honestly, like, I wish I liked Amy and Rory more. I, I like the characters, but so much of what they end up doing just drives me crazy. <laughs> and, like, why Rory sticks around when he's clearly the most logical one in most situations, he's like, oh, I see an exit door. I'm going to take it. <laughs> you know, what the hell? Fill in the title, Daniel. That was a God complex. complex. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to get back to the what we're talking about, the city of death, kind of helped move us forward <laughs> out of Moffat Town. Well, yeah, let's let's move on to city of I, death. I here. think though, like what watching classic Who does for me mm-hmm. is realize how much Moffat rips off and okay. how much. He thinks he's doing, like, this is a nod to when this happened before. And I see how he, think it's, he thinks it's an homage to Classic Who, but it, it just ends up feeling like when we go back and watch stories where we have splintered characters and we have, like, more nuanced dealing with time, there right. is kind of a feeling as a fan who is doing a, a critical engagement of the whole series, or as much as I'm watching with Daniel... There's a little bit of me just being like, God damn it, shouldn't he have done his homework better? <laughs> I would have to agree with that. Now, you guys, you guys, you came in uh, through the new series first, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We both, uh, actually, after it was on Netflix. Okay. So, like 2011, cause... like 2011 or so is when we first started watching it. Okay, which is fascinating to me because I'm coming at it from the other end. I am the old guy who was a fan back in 1983, 84. And so I, I might see things a little bit differently uh, than you. But I mean, it's I, I find it fascinating how, you know, fans of, who came in the new series will go back in the classic series. And I'm always fascinated to hear, um, I mean, which is why I've been really enjoying this look back and all, and they're doing a chronological review of uh, old stories and um, finding a lot of insight that I haven't thought of and probably a lot of old school fans haven't thought of either. You're bringing a fresh insight and I, I do enjoy that and do appreciate that. JB, <laughs> please, please, JB, tell us more about how great we are. This okay. Great, yeah. Does that make yeah. up for the Sarah Jane comment? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I don't know. You asked Shayna about that. She's the, uh, you know, we did, we did boo you the first time we met you. Oh my God. Uh, I was just like, oh, what have I done? I was like one of my really hand, you know, foot and mouth moments there. Cause oh shit, I'm not podcasting. I'm actually in front of people. <laughs> so back in the, the day, almost a year ago, uh-huh. we were sitting in a room and JP, who I had not met before, called Sarah Jane whiny. That is the short version of the story. <laughs> so I'm going to land on it. And Shayna booed. I I don't know that I booed as much as I probably instantly looked like um, Hermione Granger, like <laughs> hand raised, pouty face, must. <laughs> there was an audible gasp. I, I remember there was an audible gasp. Yeah. Uh, and I yeah. There's like the, the the whole energy of the room completely changed. It's like, oh, I am so dead. <laughs> if you but, if you go back and listen to our Chicago TARDIS episode from last year, we discussed this incident. Uh, by the way, so yeah. So I, I mean, say- so, so 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 I'm like I'm like okay, I gotta I gotta like explain myself here, and I was like, well, I mean, I, I was listening to a lot of Leela, and I think you know, I think Leela is a much more interesting. At the time, character for me, I mean, Sarah Jane certainly has her merits, and I, I mean, I adore Sarah Jane. I mean, I had a I had a companion countdown uh, early this year, and she ended up being number one. There were some times where she was, um, you know, kind of complaining about you know being stuck in an air vents or being hypnotized re- left, right, and center, and she she Maybe. yes. Wouldn't you complain? <laughs> If you were constantly being stuck in a corner, <laughs> like if that was all you got to do, and the doctor got to go off and be like, "Look at me, I'm poncy and clever." I would, I would yell at the script editor at that point. It's like, yeah. Give me better scripts. Well, that was that was Robert Holmes. So you know. Yeah, you know. Bobby H. Dog. And and I and I remember after right after that um, that panel, I, I went back in the lobby. I went on I went on Twitter, and you guys were just like, "Oh my God, JB Entertainment just called this Sarah Jane whiny," and he got booed off stage. And I was like, "Oh my God." Oh, because we're terrible people. <laughs> No, it, I will say in retrospect, it was probably... Um, I also, I remember there was actually a woman I remember who was cosplaying as Sarah Jane, and I, I, her face was just like, she gave <laughs> a look of death after I said that. Going back and just thinking of all of the panels, really, uh-huh. TARDIS, I come from a background where a lot of those settings that I'm going to panels are academic panels. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least, people who are used to <laughs> standing up to quite a bit of pressure in a setting like that. Yeah. By the end of the day, I understood, oh, panels here are slightly different, Shayna. Yeah. Back they- off. <laughs> and next year, you will do some panels and you can make all the points about feminism <laughs> that you want to make. Certainly, and I would encourage you to, when they start making the call for panel ideas, jump in because I think a lot of I think a lot of the panels last year were honestly fluff, completely yeah. fluff. You know, just like a lot of Doctor Who podcasts that I won't mention. That we won't name, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is this is the point, and uh, I will actually mention our new blog that we have. Oh yes, I am in the process of writing a blog post. Which, because I'm a writer, it may take years. Uh, <laughs> but what I talk about is what matters to me, what makes me passionate about Doctor Who, mm-hmm. is that when it's good, 
it can withstand criticism and there is so much to talk about and to have so many panels devoted to relative fluffiness Mm -hmm. of kind of contemporary who, and I mean, there was other period stuff there, but I I may find it disconcerting how many panels are about cosplay versus actually talking about the show. And it's not because I dislike cosplay. I think it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, I'm in it for a different reason. And I think that that is a very different, uh, it's a different audience um, that they have now or that they're trying to get now or they're riding toward now. That speaks to just kind of fandom in general, and and I mean yeah. this this is a this is a big, you know Doctor Who is fifty two years old now, almost fifty two years old. It is, yeah. uh, it's been there's it's been a lot of stuff over its uh, over its time, and there is place there is a place for cosplay discussions and kind of fan wankery and you know oh isn't people getting excited about you know series nine and you know th- but I think there's also a place for more serious kind of you know pseudo academic conversation and we we try to mostly focus on the stuff that interests us is kind of the ideas and and the 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 narrative and and kind of what's going on in the show what the kind of ideas that the show itself is playing with and that's not to say that we don't like some of that other stuff as well yeah we'd like to see a little bit broader perspective on some of this stuff yeah i think it's just uh, whoever submitted ideas this year they just a lot of fluff got through and I mean, I certainly, I mean, I put to, I put forth uh, an idea for a panel called the God complex where I talked about religion, uh, religious imagery. (laughs) And it was actually a podcast I did early on and that ended up getting through, but it was scheduled. It was the last panel scheduled uh, on Sunday opposite like the, the the last big panel in main programming. So, and we had, I mean, we had a decent enough, amount of people came to see that as well, but uh, they shoved it at the very end on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember uh, the first year I did panels at Chicago Tartars, there was a panel dealing with sex in Doctor Who, uh, but they scheduled that at like Friday night at 11 o'clock at night because it was like an over 18 panel. But right. that, they had a lot of people show up for that, which was amazing. Uh, lots, lots of young I remember there was, I That's think it was it. like, we know there you go. There's our time slot. <laughs> we want to do the adult panel. We're doing yeah. the adult-only crowds. <laughs> I'm going to cuss up a storm. Daniel will be drunk. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just going to happen regardless. I mean, you know, come on. Anyway, shall we uh, go on and move on and talk about City of Death for a little yes. while now? Yeah, okay. might as well. Might as well on the City of Death-themed uh, podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, JB, uh, we've been trying to set this up us podcasting together for like almost a year now honestly yeah, and um that's my fault uh, well i mean it's kind of like you know because you were like oh yeah just if you ever do the chase or whatever like i'll oh, come on and i'm like well i'll do that well no no don't mess up our schedule so it's sort of like i was trying to be polite and you were trying to be polite and then finally it's like fuck it what do you want to come on and do yeah. and like city of death and i yeah. said well thankfully we're doing that one in like three weeks so I come on actually, i think you actually said something on your podcast it's like yeah we're trying to get something together with him and it's like Oh, I guess that's my cue to actually, you know, schedule something here. So yeah. Um, so so yeah. why City of Death? I think is the uh, is the question I was going for. City of Death. Um, up until like a couple of days ago, when I rewatched it, that was my favorite episode. I think I, I'm not sure it's my favorite episode now. Uh, oh, thank God. <laughs> but it's 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 one that I if back in the day when I 
you know, be, you know, way before the new series began, if I ever wanted to introduce someone to Doctor Who, that would be the story that I would introduce them to because I thought it has everything you ever wanted in a Doctor Who episode. You have time travel, you have the green alien, um, you have Tom Baker. Actually, at this point, um, I mean, this is sort of a weird story because it's in season 17, uh, which for a lot of fans, myself included, I think was a low point in the classic series. Um, you had Destiny of the Daleks, which, I mean, I enjoy, but it's kind of a, it's a very flawed in many ways, but I still enjoy it. You have City of Death, which I think is brilliant. And then the rest of the season um, doesn't really hold my interest at all. Uh, and then and, and it, it got more and more pantomime uh, by the story. Uh, so it's kind of a weird one. But uh, I don't know, it's a, a four-parter. It's a nice, um, that's always a nice length of time for a Doctor Who episode. Uh, it's set in Paris. And I actually, uh, my girlfriend and I went to Paris in, t in 2006. Uh, so I remember recognizing a lot of the landmarks. You know, oh, there's Notre Dame and the... Uh, of course, the Eiffel Tower. And, you know, when we were leaving, I had to really fight the urge to turn around and go, bye-bye, Doug in! Because my girlfriend would have been like, what the hell are you doing? And I was like, oh, it's from this old Doctor Who episode. So if I ever go to Paris again, uh, I'm, I'm totally going to do that. No, but if you, if you go to Paris, you'll have to pick up and throw something through a window and then say, bye-bye, Doug <laughs> Pick you it got to bash through a wall or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and so I have to explain my oh, thank God, this isn't your favorite anymore. Uh, it's, 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 it, I don't know, in some ways it is, but I don't, I don't think it's in my top five. But I, I think a, a lot of people put this as like a, a number one, number two, top five. I mean, this right. is a very commonly like typical. I'm top not going to say program. I don't like it. I like it a lot. The first episode took a while to get going for me, though, mm -hmm. and I think we had to watch it three times. <laughs> We had to watch the first part twice, and then we had to watch the second part, like, one and a half times, because Shanna just started falling asleep. Which was, was it because of all the, the, the footage of them walking around Paris? Okay, so there, there's, there's a combination of factors. Okay. The footage of them walking around in Paris is part of that. Okay. The music that goes along with it... Uh was a huge part of it. The Dudley Simpson's probably most memorable score. For real. Like I would <laughs> but I was just kind of um kept falling asleep um because of it. Uh, <laughs> there there's a lot of if I if I may uh just yeah. throw in a little observation here. You know, the first two part this one famously had a had a kind of weird uh writing history because I mean the story is, you know, uh, Douglas Adams essentially, you know, like went and hit himself in a hotel room for, you know, two days and, and wrote the whole thing in just a few hours or something, um, which, you know, every writer wants a story like that, right? You know, right. like yeah. I sat in a hotel room and, and drank coffee and smoked cigarettes and pounded this thing out on an old manual typewriter. Yeah. Actually, um, I think he locked himself. I think he was at Graham Williams' house and they locked him in a room with Graham Williams. And he said, OK, we got to get this out because something fell through and we have to get something out this weekend so See, but uh, this is what i'm gonna say so it's very clear why it feels like it should have been edited back a bit yeah it, it does it does have a little bit of a first draftiness to it um mm -hmm. really i think in particular parts one and two there's a lot of just kind of expectation that 
oh, well, Lala Ward and Tom Baker are super attractive and charming, and they're just going to be super charming and attractive <laughs> at the camera, <laughs> and we've got the city of Paris to just kind of paper over the, the sort of uh, kind of nothing that's actually happening in the story to some large degree. And then once you kind of get to part three and four, it's actually like, and now we're actually going to bring in the plot. Yeah, once um, three four <laughs> got going, I was actually very interested and had a great time. But until then, I was struggling. <laughs> I, I, I have to, I have to say, there's like I think there's a few factors there. Uh, it's interesting you, you said that you thought this was the first draft. Um, uh, I have to ask, did you watch the, any of the extras on the DVD? I don't own this one. I actually watched the version on Netflix. Okay, well, if you have uh, the DVD, they have an extensive. Uh, uh, documentary about the making of the story and they actually went through it was actually uh, some of the first draft was actually written by David Agnew who wrote the androids of Terra and uh, Stones of Blood uh, you're thinking uh, David Fisher David Fisher I'm sorry yeah David Agnew is the uh, is the uh, that's right that's the pen name that they used yeah but sorry David... I had to be pedantic there no no uh, be, you know. no because if it wasn't you it would have been some you know Bernard JKD writing in saying you got it wrong <laughs> we I, get a, we get to interact occasionally it happens yeah um, but yeah uh, yeah David Fisher initially wrote the script and then for some I think he went away on vacation and they had to rewrite it and he wasn't available so that's why you had Douglas Adams locked in a room for uh, a weekend trying to rewrite the script and they actually go through the original script and there are some elements of the finished script but it's completely different so I, I have to counter what you said about it being a first draft because it certainly was not a first draft well well, technically it still is a first draft because <laughs> it's Douglas Adams first draft okay alright well, alright okay yeah, that's but, no, I, I was referring that's not fair. necessarily to the way it was produced as much as kind of the, the general feeling that you get where it, it, it could have gone it could have even if it's a second or third draft it might could have used an extra draft or two that's kind of what I was trying to land on that but right, um, honey you and just got so southern and said Mike could have did I? Oh, yeah well. you did well I can just edit that out then now can I? <laughs> oh no leave it in no leave it in I <laughs> I think what what gets me is it again it, it doesn't matter an issue of what exactly happened but I think the tone just doesn't feel right at the beginning. I didn't understand that it was supposed to be a parody to the degree it is. At the same time the chemistry between Lala Ward and Tom Baker is very distracting mm -hmm. confusing for me because this was my first Romana 2 story I like her just fine I really wish that it was a different character though I think Romana I had a really interesting understanding of and seeing Romana 2 the dynamic is so different and the idea that it's a continuation of the same character but a regeneration and I don't know that there is not enough difference to make her feel different. <laughs> well, and she's 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 not really. I mean, sorry, I, I'm not trying to, to interrupt necessarily, but she's barely yeah. in the story. To be quite honest, she's 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 more in like the like you said, this parts three and four. She actually, when she gets split off with Duggan, uh, she actually has to sort of carry the plot and sort of exposit. And at one point, she's actually helping out Car Count Scarleone. Um, you know, it's like, oh, you're, yeah. you're just, you're an alien stuck. You want to get back uh, to your spaceship. Okay, I'll help you. She doesn't know all the facts. 
Uh, and then later on when like the doctor comes in and it's like, he's almost like really berating her. It's like, it's like, you helped him. You, you don't you realize what you've done? And like, no, she doesn't. Cause she doesn't know the whole story. And you know, yeah. you did because you actually went back in time and found out what was going on. And she's like, well, I mean, I still, you know, I, well, I've set this thing to go off where, you know, he'll only be back in time in two minutes. And it's like, well, he only needs one minute to do what he needs to do. He's still fucked up, you know, kind of vibe that was getting from tom baker yeah (laughs) there's i I think i'm i'm at a point with tom baker's doctor that i don't really know what is going on inside his head he is very emotional very quickly he is popping around everywhere emotionally really um and so then bringing in the kind of really dry satirical or yeah parody stuff at the beginning I think this was a script that he really got into me because he, he always spoke of Douglas Adams as one of the script editors he respected. I think, and as far as Tom Baker and Lala Ward, um, Lala Ward has say, stated that both she and Tom treated it like it was a children's show, that they were, they, they sort of took it a little bit, I think later on in the, in the season, they took it a little too far into the pantomime side of things. I don't know where I was going with that, actually, but... <laughs> no, but- I mean, I get what you're saying. There feels to be a more adult air about this, but it's they're still treating it like a children's show. And maybe that's what I'm responding to, is that right. it feels like it's slightly goofy, and so I don't even get that it's funny, because I'm like, okay, is it supposed to be funny just because they're being goofy, or what? Yeah. Well, uh, it comes from that kind of school of humor that's like, well, what you do is you have an attractive person say a clever line kind of standing motionless on a stage sort of you know um a lot of this season 17 starts to feel a little bit like that to me Mm -hmm. and uh you know well that's a perfectly fine way to write comedy i kind of have a a limited patience for it in my doctor who yeah Yeah. for anything that i'm trying to kind of take seriously narratively um i'm sorry were we talking about moffat again no i no uh, (laughs) um you you mentioned you you mentioned the word parody and yeah. I mean, you can certainly uh, apply that to the character of Duggan, who I think is a complete parody. And it's really hard to take. I think if that's the one criticism I have is that he's a, he's played very broadly. I, I think he's I think he's meant to be like a piss take of American cop shows in the 1970s because he's always hitting people. Um, you think? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, it's kind of funny. I mean, I think I think I I mean, say- Doug, Doug, Douglas Adams made the point that it was Duggan hitting uh scare off at the end that saved yeah. everyone. Violence actually solved the issue for once, which was sort of an ironic statement to make. Well, but it was- by the time yeah, by the time you get to the third and fourth episode, you get a little bit more feeling like okay, Duggan may be a gorilla for all intents and purposes, but sometimes gorillas are handy. <laughs> uh, which is essentially what you said, but well, Doug, Duggan does one thing. He hits things and, you know, breaks down walls and, you know, like he, he is just kind of pure force applied at things. And, and so when you, when you can yeah. just kind of release that force when you need it. I mean, it's funny how often he fulfills the same role that K9 would fill in another story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, oh, we need to get through this wall. Oh, K9, use your nose laser and, and burn a hole in it versus, oh, Duggan, just go beat it and open it up for us. Okay. Done. You know, like it's, it's, uh, you know, it is like, oh, well, we don't really want to use K-9, so we have this character, this cop show parody, and then congratulations, he kind of does the same thing. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. That's actually an excellent point. And honestly, in that way, it feels a lot more postmodern 
in terms of storytelling in that we have a really strong parody that like every time Duggan has a problem, you know what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought Duggan was one of the more likable characters in a weird way because he was consistently written as this parody. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you have who I like to call the green, what was it? Green maggot spaghetti man. Scaroth, <laughs> the last of the Jaggeroth. Yes, who was also, what did we find out his other roles were? He was also in Star Wars. Yeah, and- he was General Veers in The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, he was also in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's the one. I recognized him from that the whole time. So this is Julian Glover, though. So yes, yes. Thank you for him. Ju- he I actually wrote down like- all the actors this time, so you know, yes. I did my homework on this one. He looks like his name would be Julian. Even yes. Jules. I think he looks a lot like Richard Dawkins, which is almost distracting for me. Like, <laughs> like in this story, I keep he's like standing there, and it's like, dude, you look so much like Richard Dawkins. It's not even, um, it's not even funny. But um, by the time where we get to him being kind of coy and clever with the Doctor, and all of the characters are interacting on this kind of like, what exactly do you know about me? This is how much I know about you. Back and forth. I got really engaged with the characters at that point, mm-hmm. even enough to not completely lose it. I only kind of lost it when Green Maggot Spaghetti Man shows up in his white suit. <laughs> that That is actually one of my favorite images in all of Classic Who is, oh, is my on the, on the uh, ancient Earth, on the 400 million years ago Earth. The uh, Scaroth in the leisure suit uh, walking past the the doctor that is just one of those like okay this is this is just one of those images it's just burned in my brain (laughs) it's when i think of city of death i don't think paris i think that shot (laughs) well and that's what i think is and again for forgive me for like bringing it up again that's how i found the parts that i really liked in this are the parts that feel very douglas adams postmodern like Mm -hmm. we are playing on things that we know are silly and funny and Mm -hmm. trumping them up, but still keeping a relatively serious story throughout. Right. Yeah. That was, that was a strength, certainly a strength for this story. I thought Uh, it did raise a lot of uncomfortable questions, Uh, namely the, uh, the nature of the relationship between the count and the countess. Hmm. Because yeah, actually, I was I was about to get into that. So um, let, let's let's go through the rest of our characters here. We really only yes. have two kind of major characters I want to talk about. Yes. And uh, the Countess Scarlioni. By the way, uh, I did look up. We were talking about the Bechtel test in our Power of Kroll discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this story does pass the Bechtel test because the Countess Scarlioni uh, discusses the puzzle box with Romana Two for four lines. Uh, yes, in, uh, that episodes, is true. In episode yes. two. Uh, but it's kind of a pa- it's sort of a vague pass because Countess Scarlioni is not a name. It is a title and her mm-hmm. husband's name. So it is sort of one of those like, eh, we'll count it. But um, if that scene, if that like four little line of interchange was not in this, this would not pass the Bechtel test, which right. I just thought was interesting. So uh, you you wanted to talk a little bit about the Countess and uh, Scarlioni's relationship a little bit, and this is yes. an adult podcast, so I think we should. Um, <laughs> 
we should move on with the and, uh, the the talking point you gave me. So, and I and I know I'm not the first person who has thought of this, you know. And they actually they actually discussed this in the uh, in the documentary on on the DVD. I would highly recommend you getting the DVD. Uh, but there was okay. So Scarleone, so he's really an alien, and he has his face mask. And I'm I'm not even going to get to the fact of how did he make a face mask back in like ancient you know Egyptian times and right. the Stone Age and everything. That's just don't that's even, magic. That's just yeah. Uh, that's hand waving, but okay. He, so, he just wore he just wore a skin over it, you know. Exactly. Like Zah so has he, many skins. So, but but is that just Zah like, has many? <laughs> Count Starleone has many skins. Come oh on, like, just cope with there's, it. There's, that's a fanfic waiting to happen right there. Yeah. So, but is that just? But that's just. Is that just his face, or is it, or that in his entire body? And um, Ooh. they're they're married. So are they having sex? Number one. Number two, if they are, how does that happen? How is that even possible? And number three, even more disturbing, the fact that she thinks that he's human. You know, there's no reason for her to think otherwise. She doesn't know that he's actually an alien. It, it kind of reminds me of, I just thought about this the other day. There was a, have you ever seen Revenge of the Nerds? I've podcasted Revenge of the Nerds. It's so okay. creepy. Yes, exactly. Because he's he basically has having sex with her under false pretenses because he's not who she thinks he is. Oh yeah, Uh, there's a clear consent violation there. Okay, that's what that's that was my question. Is there a consent violation? Oh, oh, so many levels. (laughs) You know, I think alone, interspecies sex, like you would think. There would be some consent, like, conversation there, like, you know, hey, have you ever had sex with the maggot spaghetti man before? (laughs) No. Are there special things I need to know about having sex with maggot spaghetti people? You know, if for no other reason that, like, I would hope that they would have a pleasurable sex life. Now, can I imagine ways that they are having sex? Yes. Can I imagine it without her eyes at least partially being closed and him <laughs> wearing spandex and a strap-on? <laughs> like... Or a perception filter. Exactly. Yeah. Ha- you know, it's this issue. That, she could just be married for the title. Now, that's another, that's the other point I have is that, I mean, if they're not having sex, I mean, that you could you could play this either way. It could be because it's like, uh, where's the professor? Oh, he's downstairs. Oh, he's tinkering with that professor again. Like, he's bas- she's basically his beard. I mean, it could be played in that way as well. That yeah. could also be a, a valid interpretation of their relationship. I, I, you know, for me, this kind of question, not necessarily even the, like, sexual elements necessarily, although clearly there is an issue there, but uh, <laughs> just the, the issue of kind of, like, she's married to this to this alien who is very clearly not human you know like like how how much can she really not know like there is this kind of element of like if you try to put any kind of psychological complexity on this at all if this marriage has been going on at any for any length of time you know either they're either they have very little private contact together and they're just kind of married for convenience or for power or for right for status yeah status or whatever yeah or she has to know. And so when you get to like part three and part four, when I first saw this, I was kind of on this, like, Oh, clearly she's like in on this. Like she knows what's going on. And then when you get to the end and she started, when she's like, she's freaking out, she's freaking out. Yeah. And it's kind of like, wait a minute. This doesn't like, 
that's kind of one of those elements where I'm kind of like, this might have could have used. A, I did it again, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> this this could have used a uh, another pass, another another thought of like how these characters actually fit together. But at the time, I think, at the time, I don't think they ever thought of it, and I and I actually didn't really think about it until recently. You know. It, yeah, and I would say it's because we're all dirty perverts. But... And no, and no one ever thought that like um, like thirty years later we'd still be watching this. I mean, it was oh, yeah. You know, television was very ephemeral. I mean, this would have been out once and that would have been it. But, you know, just right around that time is when Doctor Who started getting really big in America. And then Mm -hmm. it it became eternal. And I think you have to take that into consideration to some degree. But as Daniel said, like, she doesn't even have a name. Like, she, she does not have her own identity. She is treated as an object in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually kind of treated like his pet. Yeah. He's kind of fond of her and likes to give her pretty things, and she helps him steal things. And it's like, oh, you're useful. She, she can almost be completely excised from this story, quite honestly. I mean, no, you know, part- a little bit of the, the plotty kind of, like, the bracelet and all that sort of thing. But you can almost just remove her completely. And just give it to, like, one of the henchmen or something. And I think that that's what makes her more complicated of a character is instead of not having a female character, they put in a female character that they treat like an object. But just in case she wasn't feeling human enough, they make sure to make her look like a complete idiot and Mm -hmm. completely betrayed at the end. Right. She has been fooled so easily. I mean... Well, I mean, even Seven in the Light, it doesn't take it doesn't take much. It takes a few baubles, a few a, a bit of nefarious excitement. You know, yes. it, it's yeah. it's up in front. It's like, yeah, it just I didn't take that much to you know string you along. You know, yeah. uh, just playing her as a very not very bright person at all, and yeah, I mean, it's very degrading. You know, and I mean, what I was gonna say is. Uh, I don't know why I'm trying to stop myself from cussing at this point. I was like, but for fuck's sake, she unrolls the scroll and they're <laughs> She in. goes straight to that scroll too. Like she literally just opens up the book, pulls it open, opens it up. Oh my god, green skin alien. Like what? Well, I mean she must have she must have I think she must have seen that before and then when Tom Baker said like, oh uh, you know, a, a green eyed, one eyed alien and then she you know, she was thought it was silly and then it's like hold on, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Let me go look at the scroll. It's like, oh my God, it's exactly what he said. There must be something. It, only now it's just something, there's something to, maybe she's starting to add the pieces together. It's fair. That's probably a better interpretation that. Yeah. I think she'd have to have known about that scroll ahead of time. Fair enough. But still. <laughs> All uh, right. I, More thoughts about the Countess? Huh? If it wasn't for her, we wouldn't have that beautiful line from Tom Baker uh, where he said, you're a beautiful woman, probably, uh, which a lot of people, uh, myself included, would point to that and say, you know, this is why the doctor is a sexual uh, character. Uh, That's why a lot of people got up in arms when he started, you know, kissing his companions. Uh, Because, I mean, certainly Tom Baker and I would think, um, you know, Hartnell and Trotton played it. Um, well, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, not so much Hartnell and Trotton because they were basically, they were basically being father figures or grandfathery figures. And I mean, Tom Baker was the first, um, you know, person under fifty who played the role, and he was a sex symbol. I mean, a, a lot. There were a lot of, uh, and if you would read his autobiography, I mean, he had 
some um, you know some liaisons with uh, with uh, impressionable fangirls back in the day, and um, I think as a, for a children's show, I think you had to be. I mean, back then, you had to be careful to not bring too much you know sex in. And I mean, with John Nathan Turner, he was strictly okay. Don't put your arm around the companion. And uh, I think that's why a lot of the old fans like me were really taken aback when, you know, Paul McGann got kissed and then, you know, David Tennant kept kissing all his companions and they brought in, you know, after a while you just get used to it. I'm not sure where I was going with it. I do this a lot. I go through these long expositions and no, then I, I just completely lose track of what I was talking about. You're, I do that all the time. What I find interesting and in what you're pointing out is you had the doctor's relationship. Uh, Daniel, you said you took this from somebody else. So you have the doctor relationships with Romana. One is like <laughs> a professor and his grad student, and the grad student is like well, just kind of like fuck this dude half I, the time. I did. I did take that from someone else, Shana. I took it from you. Oh, <laughs> you're the one who said on the yeah. podcast. I might add that yeah. uh, that the that the Romana one fourth doctor relationship is very much a, a grad student professor relationship. Um, and so Romana I told that to Jack Graham, and Jack Graham said, "Well, then Romana too is the grad student who's decided uh, it, yes. she's fine with sleeping with the professor." Yes. So I'm quoting Jack Graham in the second half is what I yes. meant to say. Mm -hmm. um, so Jack. Thanks, Jack. I mean, that was private conversation, but I don't think he'll mind. So anyway. I doubt it. So what bothers me is that when we have Romana 2 become a more sexualized being, which I have no problem with. I don't think she was sexualized at all. No. Uh, well, okay, okay, all right. The, the, all right, let's, let's address the, the 500-pound elephant in the room now. The, the, you're talking about the schoolgirl outfit, right? Well... And it's not just the schoolgirl outfit. Okay. They are flirty. Yes. They're holding hands. They are, I mean, there is so much chemistry between the two of them compared to him and Romana one. Mm -hmm. It would be hard not to notice. Okay. So in an effort maybe to say, oh, no, we're not sexualizing her. We'll put her in a schoolgirl outfit. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm rolling my uh, eyes. Like, it's odd what, here, right? And what's really funny is that, um, I mean, Lala Ward stated that uh, the reason, I mean, they, they brought the idea. It was June Hudson, uh, the costume designer, who designed that outfit. Mm -hmm. And she thought... She went, she, she came on it to the, uh, to the point of view of, okay, uh, girls at school are watching Doctor Who. They have to wear school uniforms. They hate wearing scary uniforms. If they see their favorite character wearing a school uniform, it's like, oh, okay, she's a cool character. Um, uh, I, I think she's cool, so maybe I'll just think that wearing a school uniform is cool, too. She totally thought that, and then it was only afterwards where she started getting all the letters from all the dads. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> she was completely naive at the implications of wearing a school girl's outfit. I did show Shana the uh, regeneration sequence from the beginning of Destiny of the Daleks, even though we didn't watch that one and cover it. Yeah. Um, and even in, like, so at the very beginning of Lala Ward's time as Romana on the show, you really get this very different relationship between uh, Tom Baker's Doctor and Romana with, <laughs> than you had with Mary Tam. They're much more personable. I mean, if you view that I mean, if you view, like, she's essentially trying on different clothes. 
Right. I mean, you can almost read this as like, hey, do you think this is sexy? Do you think this is sexy? Do you think this is, you know, um, she's definitely, you can read that sequence as her trying to impress, you know, Tom Baker's doctor to some degree. And I don't know. I think what bothers me is that with Romana 1, and again, it's that same relationship dynamic, Romana 1, the doctor would tell her to do stuff all the time and she would kind of do what she wanted to do and pay attention to him as she saw fit, but she clearly had her own opinions. So far, what I have seen of Romana 2 is very much, you know, she's a little too trusting. She just kind of does what the doctor tells her to do. Um, When somebody tells her she can't do something, she does it. Uh, So that's adorable. But she's not a character I take very seriously yet. Give it time. Yeah, that 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 becomes much that does improve uh, as we as we kind of move on with Romana too a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's a really fair reading of of her character in this story. Yeah, um, I, I would say so. Yeah. Um, let's move on a little bit to yes. uh, the the last character I want to discuss because I think this is a really under discussed character, quite frankly, um, mm-hmm. and that is Fyodor Nikolai Kerensky. Oh yes. I some kind of Jerry Lewisy Jewish stereotype <laughs> scientist who's like I just I I can you know we've had our share of kind of crazy mad scientists on mm-hmm. this show yeah and this is the probably the greatest uh, weird caricature of a of a scientist I've seen I would much say anywhere <laughs> I would say second only to uh, Professor Ketterwell and Robot. Well, yeah, Kettle, Kettlewell at least is not like I mean he he's a caricature, but he's not like a racist caricature. Where this okay. one is like very directly like Jewy to me. Okay, um, I, I don't know if that's a fair. Show, you know, it's but... funny because it didn't feel really Jewy to me, but I think it's because I kind of thought he looked like the main actor from Reanimator. Um, so I was like, he can't be. That's completely the wrong age. Um, but I, I can see what you're talking about with his uh, very distinct Eastern European accent and like um, the big glasses, and he's kind of cross-eyed, and he's kind of got the the, the mannerisms, and... the humpback, and it's like it just it he's feels feeble. like this really weird caricature, like that, like it's I I I call it racist. But I don't like. It's hard to even know exactly what they're like. It just feels like this thing from out of nowhere in this story, which is well, otherwise pretty it's, like. Well, he's he's also a character that gets dumped on a lot too because he's being he's actually being forced to work against his will. Yeah. Uh, he's being he's being kept in the basement. Um, he's he's been threat. He's he, he he gets threatened more than once, and then he ends up getting killed just as a demonstration to Romana. It's like, oh yes, I'm very serious. I will kill all of Paris if you do not help me. Yeah, and at that point he was really irritated with Kerensky. At that point, and he's like, "I'm gonna, you know, just do away with him because I have no the machine's been built. I have no further use for you." He makes me think very much of an Einstein type character that believes he's working for the greater good, and then realizes he's created this awful device, and then he has no concept of what it does, and he thinks he's just breeding chickens. Which made me think, okay, was there? I mean, I don't, I mean, I was a little kid back in the 1970s. Um, actually, no, I was probably about, no, I was like about 10, 11, or 12 around that time. And uh, I, I, I dimly recall that there were food shortages um, back in the day, but I don't think it was because we didn't have enough food. Well, the 70s were this time of, the, I mean, eco friendly and this idea of overpopulation was this huge. 
yeah. idea from the time. If you read a lot of the, the kind of science and science fiction popular writing from the 70s, more of the early 70s and the late 70s. But, I mean, this was definitely an era where people were really talking about things like overpopulation and Malthusianism and that sort of thing. So right. it, it feels very of that period to me. Yeah, it, it does. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like kind of something. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like this weird out of, out of left field, like what the, like we're worried about not being able to feed people sort of thing. Um, it feels, it feels pretty, you know, okay. Yeah. It was 1979 to me, but yeah, uh, you know, but uh, even yeah. then, even then he's taken in by Scarleone, you know, just well, like the countess. The the blinkered scientist is one of those things that we've seen a lot, not just in Doctor Who, but in science fiction in general. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's really powerful. I mean, it's really kind of that that sort of uh, still that leftover from like the Manhattan Project sort of thing, where right. you know scientists were were working, thinking they were doing something really good to to help people, and then you know it kind of gave us this this Cold War exactly you know that lasted fifty right. years sort of thing. So. You know, I, I, th- I thought he and Tom Baker had a nice, like, nice scene together. I mean, Tom Baker was very. I, I, it was a really nice scene because mm-hmm. you know the, the line, you know, uh, a scientist's job is to ask questions, and he's you know he's generally interested in what he's doing, and uh, you know, but you got it all wrong. It, it's it's a nice little scene, and I think you know Tom Baker. I think this is one of the few stories where Tom Baker uh, really respected not only the writing but his fellow actors. I mean, certainly with Julian Glover, he was on his Zang game with him. Yeah, and I think with the same with um, I can't think of the actor's name who played Kerensky, but uh, that is uh, David Graham. David Graham, who was one of the original Dalek voices. Yes. He was also like... He was also in the Gunfighters, too. He was a bartender in the Gunfighters. Yeah. What? Sorry, you can cut this part out. It's not Team America. It's what Team America... The original puppet show? Thunderbirds? Thunderbirds. Yes! Yes! He was... Yes. Voice, yeah. I was looking up... He had, like, a huge voice acting career after this. That's right. Which I found really interesting. I think... Yeah, I didn't look him up at all. I feel bad about it now. We won't look down on you this time. <laughs> Yeah. Uh but I, I I didn't do all the research this time, Jada. <laughs> I love the fact though that with Kerensky we get the character who is constantly worried because nobody else is. Yeah. And I liked that about his character. Could it be a little anti-Semitic or sim- simplified re- representation of a, a Jewish scientist? Yeah, kinda. But also at the same time, he is trying to feed the world, and he does know that there are great powers at play. But ultimately, uh, his his greed to some degree gets him out. He can't get out of it, and so right he keeps upping the dollar amounts. So I think that there it's interesting how many kind of power plays are going on throughout. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Uh, whether it's monetary or just knowledge. Um, or control of time and space. Right. Or the prestige or uh, achievements or, you know. Right. Or so, the Mona Lisa. <laughs> the Mona Lisa, yes. Which yeah. I'll tell you right now, I've been, to, when we were at, in Paris, we went to the Louvre. I went to see the Mona Lisa. There is no way you can get that close to the Mona Lisa. There were crowds. It, it was just completely crowded. I think I got maybe within 20 feet of it. And it was like, a, it was my little bit of postage stamp. From my vantage point, so <laughs> it's also smaller than what they. Yes. As. Yeah. Not that that's like a huge thing, but when it is kind of the focal point of the episode, you would think that they might uh, follow up on that. Right. 
actually, this this brings us into, and I think we've we've uh, moved past the kind of character discussion uh, at this point, and I, I think we've got some uh, some conceptual issues and some some uh, stuff that we wanted to talk about. I, I do have to shout out the captain of the guard, um, the, the 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 on episode three, uh, played by Peter Halliday, who you may remember as uh, playing Paca. Oh, Packer, nice. Oh, wow. I didn't catch that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's him. That's Packer. Yeah, I'm so uh, I'm so obsessed with uh, Tobias Vaughn that I, I don't even think about Packer, yeah. No, we just no. say his name over and over. And over. <laughs> we we literally, JB, you don't understand. We'll literally just walk around the house I and just go, Packer. I remember that episode. I remember that episode. You guys are going off on Packer for five minutes. Yeah, we still hurts. do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, like yesterday, for all intents and purposes, we'll, we'll just go, I'll just go, hey, baby, Packer. No, I literally, okay, you can go to our Facebook page. I yeah. just posted a picture that had a small illustration part of it was not even Packer. It was um, Tobias Fun. Yeah. And I just pointed at it and said, Packer, that was it. <laughs> So there's your Packer sighting. Uh, there's more to come, actually. Oh my god! Yeah, no, I can't. I can't wait. This is this is awesome. So, um, so anyway, uh, just moving on as well. While we're talking about art, um, I don't know. Has yeah. anybody, uh, have any of you guys ever seen the uh, the movie F for Fake? I think my girlfriend saw that. Was that the one about the? Was that the one about the little girl who was apparently she was supposed to have been like a brilliant artist and it was actually exposed as a fraud? No, no. This is this is actually a, a sort of um, pseudo documentary. It's sort of a narrative documentary. It's one of the early examples of this from uh, the early '70s, so before okay. this, this episode aired. Okay. Um, it's actually one of Orson Welles's films. Um, okay. And it's uh, very, you know, most people only think of Orson Welles in the kind of the black and white and Citizen Kane and all that sort of thing. This is this is very. It feels very modern. Um, Criterion put out a really nice disc of this a few years ago. Um, I own it. Um, I meant to rewatch it before um, doing this podcast, but I didn't get the time to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, I would highly recommend that just because it, it's just kind of talking about what um, – it's it's essentially about art forgery, although it's about a lot of other stuff besides art forgery. But watching this episode again kind of made me think about you know the fact that Scarlione is funding – you know the central plot of this, of, of, the, of the sort of the scheme that, that motivates most of part three – is the idea that you can make these fake Mona Lisas that are... But are uh, they fake? But are they fake? And, yeah, because you know, they're, they're all painted by Leonardo. Right, they're all painted by, by Leonardo. Does it make a difference to the value of the individual painting if there are six identical versions that are all painted by Leonardo? Furthermore, you can buy, I mean, and we see, you know, you can buy a postcard that has a, like, digital reproduction mm-hmm. of the Mona Lisa, yeah. and you can have... A yeah. million of those in your house if you want I, them. I've got I've got a magnet of it on my refrigerator. Is that is that any less beautiful than the you know? So so I do think we're we're getting into some issues about kind of real versus fake. And in fact, the 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 story even uh, talks about that a little bit in terms of like computer paintings and and mm-hmm. versus versus quote unquote real art. And yeah. I was wondering if anybody, uh, Shana in particular, since you you're the MFA poet in the room, um, if you had any thoughts about that. It's a loaded question, right? Um, I like giving you loaded questions. It's it's my favorite thing to do on this podcast. In reality, if we were to discover the first draft of Shakespeare's works, which is another piece in his collection, right? Uh, 
would that be valuable? Yes, it would be just as valuable as all the other things. Um, if we were to find six more versions of the Mona Lisa, would they be important? Probably, if for no other reason that not each one could be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And there would still be the technique and the idea uh, behind it. I would argue, though, with you saying the postcard or the magnet is the same. Um, only because I've seen a lot of these paintings in, in person that I have seen on postcards or in books before, and you don't get the same effect. There's something very, again, ephemeral about a solid piece of art. So sculpture, painting, whatever, um, because there is a certain physicality to it that, I mean, we're starting to overcome with our technology now, but it's still not ever going to be the same as being right in front and seeing the paint and the brush strokes. Well, and... so, so let's so let's imagine we could get like a kind of machine mass produced canvas painted version that's you know like molecule for molecule similar to the original. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think that that would have the same effect as the actual hand painted one from Leonardo? I think at that point you are talking about it's mass production. Yeah. One, it's mass production, but it's also a question of artistic license and actual, you know, monkeys sitting at a typewriter will eventually type Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's accidental. The reason we consider art art is that it's purposeful. Could somebody design the Mona Lisa? I mean, let's take, let's remove the Mona Lisa. Contemporary art, there's lots of art that has multiple prints or pressings, and they're all considered valuable, but they do limited runs or whatever. Right. I think the nature of this one specifically is confusing to me, because it is. He could have saved the six Mona Lisas and not stolen the other one, and he probably could have made as much money selling them to a museum or universities. Uh, so... But the, but the whole point of the scam was that he had seven buyers lined up. Right. And each one had to think that they were buying the original. And that sort of plays into um, the theme here is that it, even even though it is a copy, it's still it's still done by Leonardo da Vinci. Is that make it even make it any less valuable? But the fact that oh, it must be it's important for these seven buyers to be as again, he's duping these seven buyers. He's attempting to dupe these seven buyers into thinking that they're the only ones that have the Mona Lisa because it's it's not so much an art. It's 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 uh, it's it's more of uh, having a high status. I mean, they, they certainly can't shout to the rooftops. Hey, I got a copy of the Mona Lisa. You like to come see it? No, it's 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 it's, it's one big mind game. It's one big. Well, I think that's yeah. a... Sorry, go ahead, Sheena. I was just going to say, it's the same thing that he says to the Countess, right? Like, doesn't yeah. take much to string you along. A little bobble and... Uh, nefarious excitement. And nefarious excitement, yeah. They're more special because you feel naughty about it. I think there is a certain amount of Douglas Adams... I think there is a certain amount of Douglas Adams criticizing visual art, though, but because of the conversation we get between Romana and the Doctor where she's just like, does not get it. And the doctor's like, whoa, it's a very pretty picture. It's a very pretty picture. And he mentioned that like several times. And all she can think about, why doesn't she have any eyebrows? 
Right. <laughs> and he gets really offended by that too, which is like, kind of funny. Excuse me, eyebrows are an important part of your face. Where are they? There are lots of interesting questions raised about this in this episode, but I don't think that there's much made of them. I think that they're kind of used as fluff, which is confusing because I would like to see more <laughs> of it. Well, originally, this is another one of those things that the, the original story, they were going to be getting the money through gambling. Um, like they, they use the magic bracelet to uh, influence a roulette wheel or whatever. And um, apparently there was some discussion that, well, kids might think gambling is cool or whatever. So they switched it to art fakery. And so in the original like draft. So if kids want to go fake a painting, that's all right. Hey, at least I learned to paint, right? You know, come on, learn a little right, bit. Right, yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, the, the whole like art theft, you know, the whole art element, the Gutenberg Bible, all that stuff is, um, is really something that was not in the kind of original storyline mm. that's something that's that's i mean it's clearly douglas adams kind of taking this idea and just kind of sticking it in um and i think it works here but i think yeah i think it's a very clever idea you know it's like you need to raise funds well that's okay we got to put up another gutenberg bible here it's like well you sure we want to do that we just we're going to call attention to ourselves it's like well just do it discreetly you know i don't right. care how you do it just do it you know and it's it's it, it's played really in a in a sort of you know, slyly comical way uh, and cleverly, I thought. I agree. Yeah, um, I would agree with that too. I think what bothers me about it is, uh, like you said, it's it's a little bit of a, of a throwaway line to some degree or kind of a throwaway subplot, if you will, mm -hmm. because there's a lot more that could have been done just in the discussion of it that I think would have been interesting. Uh, maybe, but I mean, I mean, we get, I think we get the gist. He, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's able to uh, save all these valuable pieces of art and literature uh, because he is splintered in time. Uh, he can, you know, tell his past self, Hey, you know, get, get Leonardo to do that or six. And I'll get these seven guys lined up and we'll raise a lot of money so that, I mean, they're able somehow able to communicate with each other. Yeah. Uh, and the, their entire goal is to go back in time and stop himself from pressing the button and blowing up a spaceship. You know, that's that's the main that's the main plot. That's that's the. Uh, the of course, like they do, kind of blow their load there when they're like the spaceship that creates all humans. <laughs> Just uh, one more thing, I will uh, definitely recommend anybody who's interested in a in a little bit more full featured uh, discussion of. Uh, you know, art and authenticity, uh, definitely check out it for fake. It's brilliant. And it's probably on YouTube these days. Anyway, um, not that I would recommend anyone uh, pirate such things. <laughs> just, I just want to quickly add that. I mean, for me, I got into it. Art should be appreciated for what it is and not for what it's worth. And secondly, I mean, I, my girlfriend is an artist. I have a lot of friends who are artists, a lot of struggling artists. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, you know, oh, I like this drawing you did. Uh, oh, yes, I have prints of it. And they'll like take a camera phone and take a picture of it. And it's like, okay, thanks, you know. And it, they just appreciate, they think it's pretty. And it's like, oh, it's kind of nice. And I'll just put this on my desktop on my computer. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's really disheartening sometimes that, you know, it's a lot of people just don't really think about all the time and effort, blood, sweat, and tears that go into one piece of art. And they think that, you know, well, why should I buy this from you? I'll just go to Walmart and get something that's cheaper. You know, it's just really kind of disheartening uh, as an artist. Speaking of which, don't you have that Patreon account there, JB? Oh, Jesus. Don't even bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that at the end. I think a lot of people would not consider what I do uh, art as far as a podcast is concerned. So. <laughs> 
we'll we'll just leave we'll just let that sit there. So yeah. um evolution. We we started talking about that. The punch that saved the world. Yes. Um GB, you had a little bit of a story about this. Yes, I did. I remember I remember watching this. This was would have been around nineteen eighty four. Back then I lived with my mom and dad, of course, and I had a, uh, a little sister. And uh we went to church every Sunday. I was a born again Christian. And, you know, I believe that the earth was created in six, in six days and, you know, Adam and Eve and the snake and all that. And uh, we get to the part where they're back in time to prehistoric, to, well, whatever that era was. I, I'm not, I can't think of the technical name of it. And the doctor says, okay, this, you know, this, this dirt, this piece of dirt here is inert right now, but this spaceship's going to blow up. And it's going to fuse, and it's going to the amino acids are going to start forming. And this is where you come from, Doug. And this is this is where life began. And I remember seeing that, and I was like, "Oh, my dad's not really going to be happy to, that I'm watching this because this totally contradicts with you know what the Bible said." And that was, and I think that for me was the sort of the the, the small glimmerings of the beginning of. Uh, me drifting away from Christianity. I, I consider myself an agnostic. I'm leaning more towards atheism uh, every year, it seems. Welcome and, to the club. <laughs> oh, I've been... Sometimes I think agnostics should be called, like, atheists in denial. <laughs> well, to be fair, agnostic and atheist, you can be both, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave that. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll leave that we'll, for another We'll leave that for another discussion, so. Yeah. But that was just, I mean, it, 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 it was, a, it, it was uh, many years that, it, 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 you know, it was, I was really conflicted. And I won't go into, I mean, there's a lot of other factors that went into it, but that was sort of the start of me questioning, um, you know, what I was taught in Sunday school and what my dad kept and still tries to, you know, in, beat into my head. I, 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 I have to say that that was the very beginning of it. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. Because it's like, hold on, there's, there's, you know, that's, you know, that's, that, that's, there's something to this. I mean, I could have easily dismissed it, but for some reason, I was just like, there's, just, there's, there's something to this. I mean, this makes much more sense than, you know, God creating, you know, the earth in six days. It just, it, for me, it was really hard to conceive of that idea, and it would keep me up at night. Well, like it would really yeah. keep me up at night. And I think what I love is that you're saying, religion aside, you questioned your own fundamental beliefs based on a TV show because you believed in it and you respected it and you didn't mm -hmm. feel like it was talking down to you. Exactly. Or that, or that it would lie to you in that way. No. And I mean, my I always kind of like to say, representation matters, kids. Um, <laughs> Well, and more things than just science, obviously, this is kind of where you're going, I think, Shana, but, you yeah. know, in terms of, you know, when you see, you know, women in major roles in TV mm -hmm. shows, and when you see, you know, actual representation of, of cultures that are not diminutive and that sort of thing, uh, it's just part of the, the world that the show is producing for you, or the piece of art is producing, it affects the kind of internal logic of, of kind of the way you see things. And this is why, you know, we do spend a lot of time talking about, you know, kind of, you know, lefty, liberal issues in terms of this show. And I think it's because it is important. And in stories like, you know, I saw this in this, like, element of, you know, the doctor's uh, actions or Duggan's actions, quite frankly, caused uh, 
evolution to happen and evolution is just presented as a clear and obvious fact mm-hmm. by the show there's no discussion of there's a six day creation because that's ridiculous but the presentation of that in that way starts to kind of sink in and you start to go wow this is like part of this is a this is an expectation that the show it's thinking i'm having and it affects the way that i see the world around me and i think that that's really important i i, I like that and, and that actually brings up Bringing it back to modern Doctor Who, I think another reason why I'm so frustrated with it is that there's no message. No. There's no. There's a lot. There, there are. There's a lot of shit going on in the world right now that's scary as fuck, and no one's talking about it. Uh huh. And I mean, uh, Doctor Who, you know, particularly in the '60s and the '70s, there were many stories that were issue based. You know, Barry Letts was very frustrated about the state of, you know, pollution. And he, he said that he wished that he could be a documentary and he can, he can make movies about, oh, how, you know, the world's going to hell and that we need to change things. And then Terrence Dix uh, said to him, well, you know, you make Doctor Who. Why don't we just write a story about that? And that's what great science fiction does. Yes. It, 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 it presents a mirror, a distorted mirror to the audience. And it shows you that, hey, this is what's going on here. And, you know, we need to do something about it soon or else it's it's all going to go to hell. And it's just very frustrating that there I, I really can't think of off the top of my head. And, and certainly not anything from Moffat's era of Doctor Who that really took on issues. And in fact, it's actually creating your discussion about Danny pink and clara it's very troubling the behaviors of you know the characters the doctor i find very troubling because he's i think i think peter capaldi's doctor is very rude very uh ineffectual i mean you mentioned daniel in our uh you you wrote an email to me that i'm going to be featuring on my uh next podcast about you know how modern audiences uh, can accept that because they they have all these flawed characters like like from The Sopranos and in Breaking Bad and everything. Mm-hmm. But you know if th- if this is the example that we're teaching kids, then I'm sorry, it's just not a good example. I mean, it's it's well. You know, and let me let me basically say you said that you don't like contemporary who oh i like it i mean i i like some i mean i'm not saying i'm not saying i hate contemporary who yeah i just think it could be i can be i think it can be a lot better and i think it can i think i i mean part of the reason what i do is that i mean i have a i have a microphone i do i do speak out on things that i get bothered about and i try to tie it into the show yeah that's what i meant sorry i didn't mean to overstate uh that's right you're you one of the reasons you said though is that you feel like there's a, a kind of an overarching uh, message mm-hmm. um, that you don't feel like is present in contemporary who. And I would argue there is an overarching message of contemporary who it just happens to be really sexist. Yes. And yes. Um, fluffy. And well, it fits in the face art. of a lot of what we want or, you know, the the depth if it's like you're trying to find depth in this well you know screw you mm-hmm. all art is political art whether it is intended or not and if yeah. you are writing so-called you know non-political or apolitical art you are by definition embracing whatever the status quo is exactly your own biases and at least resistance but i don't think moffat is going in that angle at all i know I mean, there's no way he's you know thinking of any of these very heady issue he just wants to make this silly children's show 
you get a few of them in season five where where you know if you're or series five excuse me if you're you know the beast below and uh, oh yeah the, yeah the uh the uh, two-parter uh, but, both like, have you know at least some kind of political subtext. I think the yeah the beast below worked for me. The Silurian two parter I think I've seen once. I don't think it was very simplistic because the doctor was like, oh yes, we can you know have a truce, and I think it was being very naive. Yeah, uh, I, I think that Silurian uh, two parter was uh, better when it was called Doctor Who and the Silurians. It was yes, seventy one. Uh, but you know, sorry. Yes, <laughs> we're way off topic now. But um, yeah. I, I do think that I think um, the the difference that we're making here is we're talking about stories that can sometimes be moralistic, or at least you can take some kind of message from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and contemporary who, or well, not even contemporary who, Moffat who I do feel this way about. But there are other time periods in who where. Uh, like we said, later in the season, which I don't know because I haven't seen, where the excuse of, well, it's a kid's show, mm-hmm. kind of undermines what you're saying. Because I have, I watch plenty of kids' shows, mm-hmm. and they deal with very intense stuff. And there's a certain amount of respect of children can handle the real world. They just might not understand where you know, it's coming from. I think Stephen Moffat approaches it like, oh, well, we can't really understand the world, so we'll just go on a roller coaster and have fun and figure out little puzzle boxes. Well, I, I think I think ultimately, and I and I think this is a, a criticism you can make of the Grand Williams era, just to kind of bring it back, you know, there, mm-hmm. there was this kind of sense that that isn't what the show is trying to do. It's not, you know, I yeah. don't think that, I think that if you asked Moffat, you know, he would say, well, I'm not making it time. We're not, we're not trying to make political points. We're just trying to tell a fun story yeah, or, you know, an emotional story or whatever. I think the political stuff is buried within it, which, you know, is toxic and, and you know, in my opinion, very awful politically. Okay. Um, I yeah. think that the Graham Williams era, I mean, you know, it, you know, the Graham Williams era has the sun makers. The Graham Williams era has the repos operation and has, there are some deeply political stories in the Graham Williams era, but I think especially season 17, um, they're not really interested in discussing that. I don't no. think City of Death really does anything particularly interesting Mm-mm. with, um, you know, politically. I don't think, um, I think the one time they try, it's this kind of overdrawn drug metaphor, which, uh, what is it? The, uh, oh, Nightmare the, Eden? yeah, Nightmare Eden, yeah. And which, you know, is just like, don't do drugs, kids, you know, way to go. Yeah, whatever. I did just to, again, to bring it back to City of Death uh, and maybe kind of talk a little bit about Moffat as well, because it's our show. We do what we want. We talked a little bit about splintering um, in the in the kind of the intro of yes. the story and uh, the, the how the splintering technique is used. And I thought um, just to start with Shana, Shana, what did you think of the kind of the timey-wimey elements of this story? Honestly, it didn't bother me that much because we really only had to deal with two splinters. You know, we, we weren't going and seeing like all these different time periods of maggot spaghetti dude. We had a fairly straightforward idea of it. And I also liked the idea that they were still connected, even though maybe it was a loose connection. I think the splintering of Clara that has always bothered me is the fact that it weakens the character. You literally take the character and break it into pieces. Whereas I think with him splintering and he takes on these whole new personalities to some degree, 
it holds up for me, at least on an initial viewing. And I think it creates an interesting enough counterpoint or a little problem for them to continually have to deal with that I liked it in terms of the story. Um, I mean, certainly the, the splintering in time element in City of Death was, I think, well thought out. I mean, it, it served a purpose to the plot and it was it was much more logically set up. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the splinters only had a finite number. I mean, they probably lived out their lives and 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 eventually died uh and and it was more of a means to an end whereas i think the clara splintering in time was a gimmick it, it was a total gimmick and it was, it's really funny that you thought that the splintering loose uh weakened clara i thought that both dog clara and victorian clara were much stronger characters than clara prime oh yeah but then in season existed. seven, at least, I think season eight they they corrected some of that. But I well, yeah, that. I mean, I appreciated that they did build uh, Clara uh, a character in season eight. I don't like the character that they built necessarily, but I do appreciate that they did finally give her some character, and they and she wasn't a um, a she wasn't a puzzle box in in seven B. Well, but, and I think the re- the reason I say that I feel like that weakened her character is because. Instead of being a character that we get to know in pieces, she is several different side characters, none of which are strong, because Victorian Clara is not Dalek Clara. They're both versions of Clara. They're like AU Claras. Already I'm getting sick of myself talking about it. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, have a, I have a narrative kind of structural argument here. If, All right. Um, season 7, Series 7B, you get the splitting is the answer to the plot. It comes at the end. You're but asking, I guess you have this I, mystery. But I guessed it. I guessed it at the at the off. I, oh, sure, I thought, sure. You know, it was it, it, it for me. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people who came in as an old school fan guessed it. I mean, it, it, it's the same thing with Missy. I mean, I knew right away that was the master. Oh yeah. You know that that irritated me that I guessed the plot. You know, many stories before we actually got it revealed. And when you can guess the plot, then you then that's another indication to me that you know he needs to try harder. Lazy. He's being lazy. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is whether you guessed it or not, you get the resolution. Like the the Clara being the split in time person is the answer to the mystery rather mm-hmm. than the mystery that is being solved through the narrative. Right. So right. for instance, in City of Death, the person splitting element, the, the kind of alien splitting you learn, oh, this is because of that uh, explosion, but then it motivates the rest of the plot. Exactly. It becomes part of the story that then uh, you have to deal with in some way. And it matters. It matters to what happens. Whereas, I mean, literally, the whole answer to Clara's thing is she's split into all these pieces. You get this kind of cool, like, we get to see all the doctors thing. And yeah. Then but it was a end, stunt. It was a stunt. It's a stunt, but then there's no, like, answer to it. And, in fact, you just kind of land. You meet the, the war doctor in that little cliffhanger. And then it's never explained from there. Exactly. Like you, exactly. So, oh, so, they don't need it. It's not even bother. It's not it's, even bother trying to explain how they got out of that. It's not never, that. It's not that she split. It's that once she split, there's then no payoff for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, the splitting is the payoff, and I think that's why, you know, if you're going to do these kind of timey wimey things, I mean, I I love these things in my science fiction. Oh yeah. You just you just have, you have to like 
explore them. You know? I, think, I think Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is, is much more brilliantly written than anything that Moffat has done in the past three years. I like listen a lot, but, you know, I'll, I'll <laughs> uh, you know. I mean, Bill and Ted had its logic, and it had its, it had its set of rules, and it followed the rules. Moffat will set these rules up and then completely ignore them. Agreed. And I think, you know, you can do that once or twice. <clears throat> you can rewrite your own rules, especially especially when, you know, you're dealing with time and space. Yeah. Uh, but I think what ultimately I feel like is here in this story that mm-hmm. we don't get in a lot of contemporary Who stories is this concept of there is always going to be something larger than yourself. And I don't mean in the term, in terms of religion, but right. I mean, specifically what you're talking about. We, part of this story just kind of coincidentally is the beginning of the human race. Mm-hmm. And the doctor sums it up to be like, well, of course you have to die because one race must die. So another must live. And it's, you know, poetic, whatever. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. If we're going to cross cross genres, (laughs) cross the streams on that one. But I think ultimately it is that sense of larger connection um, that is missing in contemporary Who. Mm -hmm. And whether or not that's because we get a Clara storyline that's just kind of waved away without explanation, or whether it's because we don't get these points where we're not just focused on tiny human or alien specific problems we're looking at universe level implications Mm -hmm. think that when you are interpreting stories and bringing in that kind of scope it really changes the importance of how each character reacts and so i i think moffat end up ends up treating everybody like they're equally important in some ways and that ends up just falling flat uh whereas in this story uh, in city of death i do think that we get the kind of social hierarchy and um, kind of global understanding of aliens at play as con artists. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else I was saying. (laughs) It's getting late for me. Oh yeah. (laughs) I think we're winding down a little bit. Um, I have more notes, but you know, there's no, I mean, I'm done. Any other thoughts about anything in City of Death or Stephen Moffat or um, just telling us how great things about our podcast there, GB? <laughs> well, I, I would encourage, uh, I mean, I'm certainly going to plug this thing uh, on my own podcast, so I would encourage uh, everyone who has not had a chance to listen in to your podcast to definitely uh, give it a shot. I mean, it's, it, it is very heady. Um, I mean, I mean, you you forwarded me your notes for tonight, and it's like, oh God, I didn't really do my homework. I just watched the episode here. Uh, I, I, you know, my job was just kind of be witty and funny, and you know, um, but no, I, I I really enjoyed. I mean, I've delved into. I think I started listening around the time you started reviewing classic episodes, so uh, I'll have to dive in even further back, but. Um, I, I, I have enjoyed myself immensely tonight. So, um, Shanna, any final thoughts about any of the uh, things we talked about tonight? No, I don't really have any final thoughts. Okay. Sorry. Oh, no. I, th- I, th- I think we said all there is that needs to be said. <laughs> I think we've talked long <laughs> enough. Uh, JB, tell us where we can find your podcast. Uh, you can find me on the web at who37.com, on facebook.com slash who37, and on Twitter at who37podcast. And can you tell I say this each and every 
episode of my own podcast. This is my spiel that I do. I, I know that feeling. Uh, I know that feeling. <laughs> uh, you can also find me on iTunes. If you can give me a review there, that'd be great. I'm also on Player FM. You can also find me on the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance, uh, which I'm going to shake them up because they need to get you guys on there too. And I think I think it's a crime that you, I mean, you're not on there. Web of Queer's not on there. I know you guys uh, wrote in and say, hey, can I be on there? And it's just, you know, they haven't really acted on it. So we need we need to get some more uh, critical thinking in, in in the world of Doctor Who podcasting. And um, it's been it's been great chatting with you guys. This tonight. has been great. Thank you for telling us how great we are. This is awesome. <laughs> I feel really great about this podcast now. It's yeah. awesome. Um, all right. I think that's it. Next week, uh, we are actually, so this airs, this episode goes up on the week before series nine airs, a few days before series nine starts. We're not talking about series nine next week. We're going to do that in two weeks because we're doing them in, in twos to, so that we don't talk about Moffat for 12 straight weeks. Uh, next week, we're going to be diving straight into John Nathan Turner town. We're going to be talking about full circle. And aren't you excited you didn't get to be on that one, JD? <laughs> Oh dear! I, I had to talk about Adric with the Tardis Tavern. I think no, once is enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so look forward to that. And until then, the Tardis is closed. Bye bye, Daniel. Bye. Bye bye, Shana. Bye. <laughs> Our theme song is Doctor Who theme on Mini Moog by James Bragg. His YouTube channel can be found at YouTube.com/slash/hypedust7, all one word. The website for his band can be found at www.phoenix-flare.com. We thank him for the use of his work. Looking for more? Oi Spaceman can also be found at oispaceman.lipson.com, all one word, and we're also on iTunes and Facebook. Daniel is also a regular on the They Must Be Destroyed on Site movie podcast hosted by Lee Russell, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. Daniel's individual Twitter and Tumblr can be found at Daniel E. Harper, all one word, and Shana's can be found at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. You can also email us at oyspacemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com.
Woo, 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 woo.